The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode three of the World of Darkness podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, before we get started, Peter, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty fine, uh, except that the weather keeps acting strange. Uh, last night and all through the night, it was humid on the on the border of, of moist, which meant I couldn't sleep very well. But hey, that's life. Well, we've definitely had some humidity down here as well. Um, right now, it's it's starting to get you know really muggy. Uh, so yeah, same here, having trouble sleeping, but. Tomorrow I will be playing Transylvania Chronicles, so I'm real happy. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the book we're looking at today is Constantinople by Night from 1996, developed by Robert Hatch and written by Philippe Boulle, Joshua Mosquera Ashheim, and Lucian Solban. I am fairly certain I butchered at least one pronunciation here. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, <laughs> But we, we'll just uh, blame it on the fact that we're both Scandinavian. Yeah. Uh, so for those of our listeners who are unaware, we should probably mention that Constantinople is the city that is today called Istanbul. So in modern times, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Yeah. Why, why Constantinople got the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks, really. Yeah. And, and you, just, you can't go back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Uh, okay, if you didn't get that, you are too young. <laughs> um, so, now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, let's talk about the cover and the artwork. Now, I personally love the cover. I think it is a beautiful picture and very evocative. And what do you think about it and about the artwork in general? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's, it feels a bit stereotypical oriental, but considering the the setting and the game... I don't really have a problem with that. The uh, the artistry itself is is beautiful, and there are I I couldn't find a single long fingered vampire in the entire book, uh, <laughs> wi- which made me happy. Um, and and yeah, the the artwork in general I like it. It's um, uh, it it's uh, more toned down in a way. It's not uh, the the exaggerated pictures that we have in some of the other books. Uh, what what kind of it gets me is that some of the character portraits look very 90s and not just in the style but in like you could use those same portraits for for vampires they look more they yeah. look more in place in a 90s goth club than in uh, uh, than in Constantinople in in 1197 exactly um i want to go into more detail about that once we get to the character chapter but basically yeah. yeah um when i was looking at it i thought yeah there's a mix of good picks and picks that are just decent and then we got to the storyteller characters uh section um and but um like i said we'll get to that but i just want to point out a picture on page 112 uh which portrays um if i recall correctly the um the leader of the ventru faction um caius and he is shown holding a glass 
and it is a modern wine glass. Yeah. It has a stem and it has a base. Uh, and as you said, there are just some pictures that very much wouldn't look out of place in a 90s goth club. Um, so there are some missed opportunities there. Um, but otherwise, uh, very good. I had some trouble reading some of the sidebars. I don't know if that's just the PDF copy that I have, but there were some sidebars that were very difficult to read because of the the sort of background picture in the sidebar. Um, I don't know if you had that same problem. Uh, not really. I had more problem with the font of the introduction to to each of the chapters. Uh, it it's getting to me. It's it's getting annoying. Um, yeah, we mentioned that last time, and yeah. the same here. It's just it's really difficult to yeah. read. All right. So before we get into the real meat of the book, I think there's something we should talk about. Um, in the last two podcasts, we've mentioned several times how cities of this day and age are small and, and can't support many vampires. Uh, they don't have much going on after dark, etc. And I have to say, for the first setting book for Dark Ages, they really decided to um, to take one of the cities where this is very much not true. Yeah, they did. Uh, and, and Constantinople was... A huge city, even almost with modern standards. Uh, they they did exaggerate it a bit. I think they they may mention a number of of about one million inhabitants. Yeah, yeah. They 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 say that it it has up to a million inhabitants, which is uh, something that has been repeated quite often in in other texts as well. Yeah, from from my research that I could uh, that I did before uh, we recorded this, uh, the the more uh, more believable number is probably somewhere, again, d- depending kind of of the time, uh, of from somewhere between 100,000 to 500,000 people, which is still quite a lot. It uh, is a huge, huge amount of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, if if you say 500,000 uh, people in a city today, then, uh, I mean, that would be a big city here in Denmark. Yeah. Um, but, of course, if you're from... Uh, um, the US, if you're from England, if you're from Germany, it doesn't sound as a massive city, but I don't think we can overstate how incredibly big Constantinople was in the Middle Ages. It was just this massive city with incredible amount of people uh, inside the walls, and and physically it was also a big city. Yeah. Uh, what's What I find quite interesting, though, is that... Um and and we're getting to that, but in in twelve o four during the fourth crusade, the city was actually sacked and pillaged uh, by crusaders, and they had uh, what you would probably describe as a bit of a civil war. But yeah, spoiler uh, warning, by the yeah, way. <laughs> spoiler for for eight hundred year old uh, uh, <laughs> historical events. Uh, but after that, uh, during the the first part of the thirteenth century, the population dropped dramatically. Uh, and at some point, uh, it was down to only about thirty-five thousand inhabitants, and then in in about the twelve sixties, it it had gone up to about seventy thousand. So so the the population varied a lot, uh, which is kind of suitable for the for the kind of apocalyptic uh, setting uh, with the fall of Constantinople. Uh, but again, that would have huge uh, effects on on the Canaanites living in in the city. Um, the population did go up again afterwards, and I think back when uh, it, it did go back to to around uh, half a million inhabitants at the time of the uh, Muslim uh, conquest in in fourteen fifty three. Yeah, um, and 
uh, we will actually get to a book uh, that that details this. Uh, there is a um, a chronicle uh, that that the White Wolf did called Bitter Crusade, which deals with the with the Fourth Crusade and the ramifications of that. And I'm really looking forward to. Uh, to looking at that book because I've played it and I remember it as as quite an interesting uh, chronicle that I really love being a player in. Uh, so yeah, they've they've decided for their first book that they're going to take a city where they can really showcase all of the things that they've talked about in in previous uh, in previous books. So I think this is a really good choice for a setting for that reason and for a a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, now. I was quite intrigued to get this book since I have not read it before. As I mentioned, I've been a player in the Bitter Crusade campaign, which takes place, place partly in uh, Constantinople, and that's it. Uh, and also, I knew very little about Constantinople in the 12th century before reading this book. Uh, I know more about the city in the 6th century, actually. So what about you, Peter? How much did you know about Constantinople prior to reading this? Uh, well, I, I knew a bit uh, since uh, I, I've been researching it. And, and uh, um, I've, I, I'm not going to say that I'm a fan of the Crusades, but it, it has been... Uh, part of of uh, uh, my topics of interest since uh, uh, well the the Crusades and what happened afterwards shaped Europe in a lot of ways. So oh yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, so you can see how the um, how the transfer of, of both knowledge and and trading goods and everything uh, influenced uh, basically the the whole of Europe afterwards. Yeah, very uh, much. The Crusades is is an incredibly important um, uh, or and a series of very important events in the shaping of both uh, Europe and uh, the the Near East. Yeah, and and as we will see later on, uh, Constantinople as a political power uh, affected uh, even parts of the of, of Europe, even all the way up here in Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're looking forward to talking about that because uh, just in case you didn't think we could uh, connect a city this far away from Scandinavia to our homeland, trust us, we can. Yes. Um, so we start with an introductory chapter which gives a basic overview, the classic, you know, how to use this book. Uh, there is some reference for people to check out. Then a fairly lengthy section on theme, mood, the use of symbolism, the outlook of mortals and canines from Constantinople and... Uh, how it differs from the outlook of what we might call the default setting, uh, that is Western Europe. Um, so what's your take on the intro? Uh, I, I think it was uh, really good, actually. Like it's it's very concise and, and it has some really good guidelines to uh, to how to use it. And, and like you said, how it differs from the from the more default setting. Uh, so so yeah, it, it gives a very good overview, uh, and and again, uh, a lot of the artwork in this chapter is is really evocative, uh, which which I like. It's it's a very good way to uh, to set the mood for for the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah, I I really liked it as well. I think it did a good job of presenting uh, the setting and the book and giving us an idea of what to expect from a book that. I would say is is quite different from what they've done before and it was also very good in presenting something that I'm going to be calling the high concept of the book it's a term that I'm probably going to use quite often and I'll get into what I mean by high concept uh, later when when we get into uh, more, the more meat of the book so chapter two uh, this gives us the history of Constantinople with a few nods to the Byzantine Empire interwoven with the Canite history of the city now I have to say uh, 
the only major mark on this chapter for me is that I think there simply wasn't enough room. Uh, the chapter rushes over some very interesting chapters of Byzantine history um, uh, that I would have liked to have seen explored a bit more. Um, but all in all, I think it's really a masterclass in how to interweave the telling of mortal and canine history. Uh, now, I know you want to talk about a huge missed opportunity in this. Yeah, well, well. first of all, I, I'm going to say that I completely agree with your assessment. Uh, it's it's a very good, like you said, um, uh, way of, of uh, interweaving the, the mortal uh, history with, with the canite setting. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't go super crazy with the vampires did everything um it, it do have quite a bit of that but it's it's not overly exaggerated yeah i i made it i made a note that that there was quite a bit of canines did everything but on, at the same time you know we're talking about uh, a setting where you have four methuselahs four uh, sorry three methuselahs three fourth generation vampires being involved in it uh, so I, I i can live with the amount of canines did stuff that they have involved here yeah, but yeah, what what I really wanted to talk about uh, was uh, the Varangian Guard, uh, and for those of uh, you who who don't know what that was, uh, it was uh, basically I can't remember really when it started. It started quite early. It was eight uh, hundreds or something. Yeah, some somewhere around that. It wasn't around in the area that I know most about the 6th and the 7th century so it must have been uh, a bit later than that but it was quite early yeah so i'm going to uh, yeah i'm 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 going to throw my hat in there and and say uh, that some sometime in the 9th century uh, the emperors of uh, the byzantine empire um, they they basically um, hired uh, mostly swedish uh, Vikings, you would call them as as bodyguards and uh, um, and and soldiers, uh, because uh, Vikings from from Scandinavia and and mostly Sweden, since uh, the Swedish Vikings traveled down the rivers of of Eastern Europe down to uh, what they called uh, Miklagord, uh, which was uh, um, Constantinople or Byzance as it was known back then, uh, and they were known for being really good fighters and and looking scary with huge axes and and beards and and all of that uh, yeah yeah you you imagine these uh relatively short greek guys who um from what i uh, understand tended to shave until they uh, got very uh, old and and wore robes and then you have these six foot tall hairy bearded pants wearing guys coming down they must must have looked rather impressive yeah uh, w well uh, impressive enough to be uh, be recruited for for literally hundreds of years uh, as as mercenary soldiers uh, and so uh, and and there were um, varangian guards from from other uh, countries in in uh, scandinavia as well mostly denmark and and some norwegians as well yeah, and, and there were also a few um, uh, Saxons that, that went down yeah. there as well. And at least one Danish king, before he became king, when he was just the, the mm -hmm. prince, he actually served in the Varangian Guard, and I cannot remember who it was. But he served in the Varangian Guard, and then when his father died, he went back to uh, to Scandinavia to, to rule Denmark. So it's it's really cool, uh, a really cool 
um, thing that, that happened, and they only mention it in a few throwaway lines and don't explain the Varangian Guard, but as you mentioned, they actually had a huge implication on your home country of Sweden. Yeah, uh, well, the, the thing is that uh, as, as with everything that is cool uh, and profitable, everybody wants to do it. So, uh, and, and this, of course, uh, is, is a bit of a simplification, but the way that the, the Varangian guards were recruited was basically that uh, they, they were hired uh, as, as guards and then they would serve... Uh, usually until the emperor died and then they had a very interesting privilege yeah uh, i love this one yeah which is uh I- excuse my my old norse but polutas uh, varf i would <laughs> probably which which basically means that okay the, the old emperor is dead and we need to pay off his his very loyal guards so they were allowed to go into the treasury and basically take as much loot as they could carry and then they would go home. Uh, so you, you basically pay them off. And what happened when they got home was that they would have all of this fantastic loot. Uh, not all the gold and jewels, but most likely uh, silks, uh, glassware, stuff like that. Uh, Advanced uh, weapons and armor, maybe even? Yeah, probably. Uh, and, and so what happened was that they would, of course, show off their wealth. And, and this would... Uh, allow for the recruitment of, of the next generation of, of fighting men to go down there and, and hope for the same. Uh, and this this was such... I'm, I'm not sure if you should call it a problem, but it was it was so influential and so many fighting men of, of Sweden went down there that uh, in, in at least one of the provincial laws of Sweden um, there, there are actually... Uh, limitations in the Westrogothic law and and when we speak about Goths in Sweden we're not talking about uh, the uh, Ostrogoth and Westrogoth uh, who were raiding down in Rome but uh, a similarly but uh, not related uh, a similarly named but not related uh, group of people living in in Scandinavia or living in Sweden Uh, going to goth clubs yeah (laughs) exactly Um, but in, in the Westrogothic law, uh, which is uh, one of the oldest Swedish texts written in, in Latin, uh, and, and this particular example was written in, in the late 1200s, uh, but actually law, the actual laws are older than that. Uh, it says that if, if you, as a, uh, as a man, as a person, uh, is, uh, are, are staying in Greece, which was the Scandinavian ni- name for the B- Byzantine Empire, uh, you weren't allowed to inherit back home in Sweden. Oh, uh, inheritance laws. Yes. Uh, so, and and this was of course really important because a lot of the people who went down there were not necessarily noblemen, but at least freedmen, and and um, and and had some kind of importance to just to be able to to afford going down there. Uh, and if they couldn't inherit their their family homes back home, uh, this severely restricted uh, their their wealth back home in Sweden so it was uh, the the fact that they had a law about this shows how uh, how far reaching uh, and influential the the Byzantine empire was uh, that 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 Sweden which is kind of interesting from a modern perspe- perspective that uh, that that Sweden wanted to stop emigration instead of today when you're talking about restricting immigration. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so. um, and and 
this really is a, a missed opportunity. I wish they, they could have gone a bit more into detail because, I, I mean, just mentioning it a bit more could have, have sparked some ideas about uh, character creation yeah. and things like that. You, um, you could and they have also mentioned... Yeah, sorry, sorry. go ahead. Uh, they also mentioned something called the, I think it's pronounced Skolai God, um, which are also given like a, f a few random mentions. Uh, I specifically didn't look it up because I just wanted to say, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but it sounds interesting. And I wish they, they would have, have expanded on that a bit more. So there are there are a couple of missed opportunities, but again, they're, they're limited by the amount of, of pages that they have. Yeah, but I, I think it's... Uh it's a really bad missed opportunity because you have the the gangrel of uh, Constantinople uh, of which the leader is a Norman uh, feudal lord uh, and he could easily have uh, connections to, to Scandinavia um, at least vampiric connections if, they were, if, if you agree that there actually are vampires in Scandinavia at, at this point exactly um, yeah um, so that's I mean I told you we would find a way to connect this to Scandinavia, yeah. and if you can't tell, Peter has studied law at university. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so, so this is this is this is one point where I think they they really should have expanded on it, just because when people think Constantinople, they don't necessarily think uh, a Viking guard protecting the emperor. Yeah, and and they were even even in the twelfth uh, and thirteenth century. Uh, they they are still described as as basically being very uh, classic Viking fighting with Dane axes and and having long beards and stuff like that. So so if you really wanted to um, to have the juxtaposition of of the very uh, intellectual and and classical almost Roman uh, vampires of the south with these uh, in in a lack of a better word barbaric. Um, guards uh, and and soldiers protecting them they they really dropped the ball on that one yeah uh and and we're not just saying this because we're scandinavians it it really is something that that um that they could have have run with and made something interesting with and i hope that the people who are hearing this and maybe even didn't know about the ranking god mm -hmm. will agree that this is something that could have made for a really interesting plot point um okay so um now, yeah, uh, one thing that I wanted to discuss a bit more is the end of the chapter where they talk about the future fate of Constantinople. Uh, now, as you mentioned, the city gets wrecked in the Fourth Crusade. Yeah. Um, so what what's your opinion on adding these just about two pages that talked about the future of the city? Uh, I, I think it's um, it, it's good, especially if you're planning uh, a, a chronicle that isn't set just in 1197, uh, and and you want to plan ahead at least as a as a storyteller to see what's what's going to go on. Uh, then then you would need something um, just just as a heads up and a warning so you can plan it. Um, and then of course, and and they do have a small. Um, side note about alternative histories and and what if uh, the crusaders uh, w weren't able to to take the city um, again fun fact one of the uh, the the Varengian guards are actually mentioned in in uh, written history as protecting the walls of uh, of the city against the crusaders so yeah 
Um, I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent about it. Um, this is obviously very important, as and as you mentioned, if someone's running a chronicle, it's something that, that they absolutely need to know about. Uh, I tend to prefer a snapshot um, rather than, than looking to the future because you can always do that research. But on the other hand, mm. um, a, as important as it is, it's interesting to be put in. Now, I'm thinking that when they wrote or when they uh, published Constantinople by night, they probably knew that uh, the Chronicle Bitter Crusade, uh, which focuses on the Fourth Crusade, was going to be made. Uh, and this allows them to really sort of set the stage. There is a lot of mentions throughout the book um, about um, people having visions or premonitions or even just uh, a basic non-magical idea that yeah. uh, the city is going to be in trouble. Mm. So it, it, it allows for uh, for use of, of foreshadowing, which can always be a really, really interesting um, story. Uh, story. What's the word I'm looking Tool. for here? Tool, probably. Or, or... Yes, thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> uh, now, one thing that this book is missing that I think should either have been in this chapter or possibly in a chapter of its own is some more information about how Constantinople works. Mm -hmm. uh, in the next chapter, we get some small information about chariot racing, which at this point is still very important, though probably not important enough to cause a citywide riot, as it did earlier, if you want to, to see how uh, sports hooliganism uh, happened in, uh, oh, yeah. in earlier times. Yeah. Check out chariot racing in Constantinople, because yeah, that was serious business. Yeah, or, or football in, the medieval, uh, in, in medieval England. Yeah, what was it called? Mob football? Yeah, but it was it was basically a citywide uh, football match, uh, and and sometimes you used different city gates city gates as goalposts. Uh, but yeah, it was um, it, it could get out of hand. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, so I would I would really like some more information uh, about. Um, how Constantinople is governed about laws, uh, well, yeah. mortal laws. We, we get some about canide laws yeah. and how they are enforced details to give the city uh, life, especially since it's a city I don't know much about. If this had been a city in, say, the Holy Roman Empire or France, then I would probably already know this because that's an area that I know about. But for Constantinople, I don't. So this is something where I would have to do some research, I feel, in order to really bring uh, the setting alive. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that, uh, especially since since you mentioned that uh, to, to know a city or, or a place, it's actually quite good to know how it is governed. Uh, and, and especially uh, since uh, Constantinople turned into this huge bureaucracy this this huge slowing uh, slow moving uh, bureaucracy which was at least according to some parts of it downfall that it was just too much of it and yeah and there's a reason why that there's a term called byzantine yeah, exactly uh, and and i feel that this could also be an opportunity to to um, uh, intermingle or, or incorporate the canite influence a in the mortal world that that perhaps one of the reason why the laws are so uh, ancient and and silly is that it's because one of these vampires used to do it and just can't abide change and and we did it 500 years ago and goddamn it we're gonna do it again. Uh, uh, yeah, e exactly. Um, but again, you know, they they have mm -hmm. they have some some. Uh, 
um, constraints regarding space yeah. in this uh, in this one, uh, but it's it's something that I would have loved to have had yeah. uh, had in there. And and as a uh, advice for people who want to do research about basically any historical area. Uh, if you want to find uh, find out what what people back then uh, thought was important, check out the things they legislated about, uh, because not only I is it kind of the obvious uh, that if if something really matters, there's going to be a law about it, which is why you have inheritance laws and uh, laws about. Uh, people wearing weapons inside cities and stuff back then, then you could tell that, okay, if there's a law that says that only noble people can wear swords inside the city limits, then at some point there were probably problems with uh, uh, peasants running around uh, either trying to, to uh, revolt or just fighting each other. So you took yeah. away the arms. Uh, and, and also because you can find this incredibly... Uh, almost peculiar laws and and when you think about it you realize that yeah this must have happened and and one of my favorites is an even earlier uh, Swedish law I unfortunately can't remember where it's from but I think it's from uh, the 12th century and and what it says is that if you are a ship's captain or or the crew of a ship and one of your passengers falls ill and you decide to dump them Dump them, dump their unconscious body on on some small island to to avoid uh, spreading disease or whatever. You have to wait at least, I think it was three days to make sure that the person was actually dead before you could leave them. Uh, <laughs> and and if you start thinking about this, this probably means that at some point there was someone, probably quite important, traveling on a ship who got ill and and um, uh, fell into uh, a coma or something or, or just became unconscious and the crew of the ship decided to just dump them on on some island somewhere and then a couple of days later this person woke up thought where the hell am i and and why am i all alone uh, managed to get back to civilization find the crew of the ship and drag them to court to sue their asses uh, yeah yes yeah, so i mean lawsuits are not a new things. No. There were lawsuits in no, the Middle Ages as well. Uh, and one must uh, remember also at, at uh, this point, uh, there weren't really prisons in the way that we think of it today. So a lot of um, a lot of the punishments uh, were, uh, if there weren't corporal punishments, were basically fines. Uh, yeah, monetary or or um, embarrassment. Public embarrassment yeah. was also used. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, this this. I mean, we should probably at some point do uh, a, an episode just about medieval law uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it could yeah. be rather interesting yeah um yeah so uh chapter three is geography uh and this is where we uh, get sort of uh, drips and drabs of what we mentioned previously mm. things that can help make the setting feel more organic and alive um other than that it gives a nice overview of the geography of the city of constantinople and a short primer on the empire that the city is the capital of. Now, I personally like that the empire itself only gets the briefest of mentions since the city is the focus of the book. I don't feel like I need to know more about the surrounding empire. But um, what what did you think about this chapter? Yeah, I, I think it was really good. Uh, like, like you mentioned, it's the, the, the book is called Constantinople by Night and not the Byzantine Empire by Night. 
and and again if we're going back to to what we talked about earlier that that basically it would be kind of hard for vampires to survive outside of the city limits then it makes perfect sense um so so yeah it's uh, i i really li like the chapter from from what i could tell about the descriptions of uh, for instance, the the walls of Theodosius II. Yeah, uh, very very um, um, famous walls. Yeah. very famous city walls. And and from what I could tell, the uh, the descriptions are quite accurate. Uh, so yeah, I, I liked it, and I like that the the main focus was on the city itself because there's enough of of that to to probably fill an entire chronicle. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I I liked it a lot. Uh, there's a lexicon uh, at the beginning uh, on arts uh, and um, and architecture, a short one which I, I really liked. It mm. it's very good for helping to understand what uh, Constantinople looks like. Um, there's the House of Lamps and Leila Madir uh, on page forty three. If anybody yeah. has the book and wants to look it up, um, and this is really uh, cool, but at the same time annoying. What this is Layla is um, she is described as a wizard who has made uh, pacts with demons, but they use mage terminology. So she is uh, an awakened mage who is a nefandus. And I I've mentioned this before. I don't like when they use terminology from other game lines. Mm. Uh, I would just prefer her as a demon wizard. Uh, yeah. rather than having her described specifically as a Nefandus mage. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do like the fact that this is uh, a book that is focused mostly or, or almost completely on, on vampires and there, there are no werewolf running around in the suburbs and, and this is... I think Layla is, is basically the only non-vampire supernatural Th character. There's w there's one more. There's another mage, but she's not given any mage terminology. Ah, uh, she, yeah. She is the apprentice of the Ravnos. Oh yeah, yeah, um, that one. Yeah. But she's she's given a very brief mention, yeah. and she they don't use mage terminology. So for me, yeah. that is the right way to include a a wizard. Yeah. In the book. I I agree, but again, I like the fact that that she is or uh, Layla. Um, I mean, is is one of the few non-vampiric supernatural entities. Uh, and she she doesn't take too much space. She's no. in there as as kind of this creepy uh, lady living in 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 a house. Uh, I love the description. Is is that uh, any canine who has tried to break in there has disappeared, and yeah. and the canines realize that if you burn her house down, the city will also soon burn. So they just stay the fuck out of there. They they do not want to mess with her. Exactly, and, and I love I love that part because it shows that there are some things that even vampires uh, don't know about, and it freaks them out completely. Yes, um, so this is one example, but I think it gives us a lot of interesting places that can be used in a game, mm. uh, which is not surprising for a city the size of Constantinople. Yeah. So really good chapter. Yeah. Um, chapter four is alliances, which describes the various coteries, power blocks, families, etc. among the city's Canites, which is a very, very important part of the Canite side of Constantinople, which where you know, they're all divided into these families and those that aren't part of the families are in one way or another outcasts and it sets the political stage. 
Now, this really goes into some depth with what uh, I call the high concept of the book, uh, the Toreador Methuselah, Michael's grand dream of making Constantinople heaven on earth with him as the archangel Michael, as well as the Opertus Simicius uh, exploration of vampirism and vicissitude and all the politicking and cults mm. and philosophy yeah. and esoteric stuff that, that surrounds this. Um, so give me your take on this chapter. Well, I, I think the word Byzantine is <laughs> probably best to describe it. And and uh, uh, in in a way, it kind of made my head hurt trying to, to like figure out all of the connections between the different vampires. But yeah, same here, same here. Yeah, but that is, at least in my opinion, uh, vampiric uh, machinations at its best. So it's it's supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be this endless line of, of backstabbing bastards and yeah, alliances. Plots within plots within plots. Yeah, and so, yeah, I, I thought it was uh, incredibly uh, well-written and, and it uh, it has a lot of opportunity for uh, for plots and, and just making up things that, yeah, okay, if I want my game to be about this, then I can have these persons influence these persons and and I'll change a bit of here and there, but overall, yeah, it's it's uh, very well written. If if you can actually make sense of it all, it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, because I think a novice storyteller might be overwhelmed and even intimidated mm. by the amount of stuff that is in here and just how dense it is. They're they're not wasting mm. words here. They are presenting a ton of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I have decades, plural, of game mastering experience, and I know I would have to take a ton of notes to use it, but it would be really, really cool yeah. because players would constantly get the idea that there are things happening behind the stage, there's always one more secret to learn, and uh, there's a lot, a lot of philosophy for them to engage with. Um, that This chapter... Uh, along with the next was really inspirational yeah. uh, because it not only gives a very good and in-depth description of the book's high concept mm. and everything surrounding it, it also gives me some ideas and some fresh perspectives on Vampire. There's a lot here that I find inspirational and things that even if I wasn't running Constantinople by night, I could use for my own chronicles. Yeah, that's that's actually a good point. And I, and I just wanted to uh, go back a bit, even though it's hard in Constantinople to... Uh, <laughs> uh, to the fact that the the introduction uh, to the entire book, you 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 basically this chapter that we're talking about now is basically just expanding on the introduction where you have the theme and the the description of the dream and so on. So for a novice storyteller, you could probably run a really good game just using the um, the the introductions uh, and and then when you feel like you needed to or or uh, you were ready for it, you could just you can just expand using the uh, the alliances chapter and and just add on to it. Yeah, I think perhaps the best way uh, we're going to get into how to how we would use this book at the end when we when we do our final analysis. Mm. But I think an interesting way to introduce Constantinople by night would probably be more along the lines of having characters that enter Constantinople rather than being childer of already established vampires within the city so that you can slowly introduce more and more rather than you know expecting your players to have a greater understanding of a very very complex yeah. city yeah it's a city that's that's going to be interesting to explore and discover more about as players i think mm, yeah um so then we have chapter five 
which looks at some storyteller characters from Constantinople. Uh, some of them are given a full write-up, you know, all the stats and everything, but most of them are just given a shorter background along with generation, nature, demeanor, date of embrace and apparent age. Uh, I think this is a good choice, you know, saving space so that more characters can be included. Uh, so this being the first book with NPCs in the Dark Ages line, uh, this is where they introduce the destiny description. It gets dropped later, but uh, for the entire run of Vampire the Dark Ages, they have the destiny description mentioning what canonically happens to major characters. How do you feel about that? Well, I uh, again, if if you're planning ahead and you want, at least if you want inspiration to like, okay, what am I going to do with uh, this character later on? I, I think it's really good. Uh, and they do have a caveat that, like, yeah, if you don't want to use this, then then just don't don't use it. Uh, but I I think it's um, I I like it uh, since it it allows you to uh, to to have kind of um, I don't know almost a, a meta perspective like like for instance if if you want to hint at uh, Malachite, for example, the, um, uh, the, the Nosferatu, the in, in his destiny, again, spoilers, uh, it <laughs> says that he, he disappears from, um, uh, from Constantinople and that he might be in some other city, I can't remember which one, uh, Damascus hunting Bali, then you could kind of build up to that 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 uh, in uh, you can hint maybe have have him receive an emissary from Damascus or or something that if he's introduced to the uh, to the player characters he could be reading uh, a, a letter about his dealings and affairs in Damascus uh, hinting that he's perhaps setting up a, a second haven there or something uh, yeah so yeah I, I, I like it yeah uh, it's it's not a bad tool as long as the storyteller knows when to ignore it so you don't have a situation where the characters uh, have become enemies of a storyteller character and wants to kill them and the game master says, no, 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 the, the destiny says that yeah. this is what has to happen to them. Yeah. But I think, you know, a good storyteller will know to ignore this. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also great if, if you have a, a character that you haven't paid much attention to and then... Uh, 200 years later in the Chronicle, one of the player characters says, whatever happened to this guy or this person? And then you can just quickly look at the destiny and say, oh, your research indicates that this happened to them. Yeah, or uh, or, or just the classical, what? I thought you were dead. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was uh, dun dun dun. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's a useful tool, like you said, if you know when to ignore it. Yeah. Uh, so we've ta already talked about the artwork. It has some... It has some really good pictures but a lot of them are really basic and doesn't give you any real sense of what the character looks mm -hmm. like uh, they're close-ups of mainly the face uh, with a lot of it in shadow it's it's not something where you can show it to your players and let them uh, get an idea of what the character looks like yeah. there is one uh picture that i really want to um to single out which is on page 99 it doesn't look anything like the character and it looks really silly. It's Gregorius uh, the Malkavian, who really looks like what you said, someone who you could find in a 90s goth club with a pentacle necklace and something that could look like <laughs> a, a trench coat. Yeah, um, exactly. It's, it looks like someone who, who had a few too many drinks in the back room of, of a goth club and just <laughs> passed out. Yeah. 
in a corner. Um, and then there are a few pictures which show more of the characters and are nicely detailed, but where the characters don't look especially medieval. There is really some anachronistic clothing going on yeah. there. So, yeah, it's it's very much up and down yeah. with the pictures. I, I once again would like to... Uh, to to um, uh, point out Malachite that uh, the Nosferatu I really like his portrait. Yeah, uh, all the Nosferatu portraits. That was something that I noted when I was looking through. I, I made a note. All the Nosferatu uh, pictures look amazing. Mm. Uh, really like this is where you get an idea of what appearance zero really means for these guys. Yeah, uh, yeah, because they and and especially I I like the fact that it gives inspiration for for different kind of, of um, uh, appearance here. It's not just like someone who is quote-unquote ugly or, mm. or as in some... Uh, I think someone at some point in the old White Wolf forums described uh, a lot of, of um, the Nosferatu in the clan book Nosferatu for, for modern-day vampires as, uh, as space elves with leprosy. Uh, because a lot of them, a lot of them had like this thin, uh, uh, they, they oh had God. this thin appearance with with pointy yeah. ears, and they they just looked kind of strange. Uh, but then again, you have like, for example, Malachite, where his uh, his skin, uh, his parchment-like skin, is literally ripping apart at at the mouth. Uh, when he he's talking and he has this crazed look in his eyes. So yeah, yeah. that he's he's really great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a few other notes. It mentioned that it mentions that um, Constantinople is dangerously wow. I cannot speak today. Dangerously overcrowded with regards to um, canines, which means they many of them have to rely on the setites for blood. And then it mentions that the city has around fifty vampires in it. Now I don't know if it was ever set in stone that in the Dark Ages a city would support one vampire per one hundred inhabitants. Uh, it, I'm fairly certain it wasn't at this point. But even one, if they're saying inhabitants, no, one thousand inhabitants. 1, 000, sorry, yeah. yeah um, but even if it's one vampire per ten thousand, then Constantinople wouldn't be dangerously overcrowded. Uh, I don't know if they're going off the modern one. Uh, vampire to 100,000 ratio, but that would make no sense in this setting. So I don't. I th I think they sort of mixed things up a bit here. Yeah, I uh, I saw that as well, and and it's probably the the problem when you mix and match a bit. And and uh, again, I I could I I totally buy Constantinople as a city where a lot of vampires uh, kind of of uh, congregate. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, which is kind of the point of of the dream of Constantinople. Uh, so you you probably have, I don't know. I would probably say that around fifty is probably kind of like the mainland mainline standard of of how many vampires actually live in the city, and then it could fluctuate uh, with the crusade with traders. Um, yeah, that's definitely going to to have an effect yeah. on it. And and of course, it's it's like modern day tourists going to Ibiza or places like that. It, if it's you, you don't really care about the rules when you're abroad. So I could imagine that visiting vampires uh, act like idiots, and and <laughs> that causes problems for the for the canines who, who actually Stupid live there. Tourists. Yeah, exactly. So a very very minor thing. Um, at some point, they talk about. Uh, vampires that have come from the city of uh, of Accra, uh, and the only reason I'm mentioning this is that I'm currently writing a chronicle called Fall of Accra for the Storytellers Vault. Mm. So I did some research into the official uh, vampire information about Accra, 
which is in the Chronicle called Under the Black Cross, uh, where part of it takes place uh, in Accra. And here it's stated that no vampire could enter Accra from around yeah. the year 30 AD until, I think, 1212. Um, but obviously that wasn't established at this time, yeah. but it's just fu a fun little, you know, inconsistency. Yeah. Um, and finally, before we take a look at a few of the individual vampires, uh, this chapter suffers heavily from uh, overpowered vampire syndrome. Yeah. Now, when you talk about really ancient vampires like, say, Michael, sure, they're powerful. But uh, my vote for worst offender is uh, a brucha called Natalia Sviatsch. Vyatoslav, I think it's pronounced. She's less than 200 years old, years old as a vampire, and she already has three knowledges at six and 16 dots of disciplines. So there are times where you just go, uh, I, I've, I've played long-running chronicles yeah. uh, taking place over hundreds of years and uh, just no. Yeah. They, they don't get this powerful. Yeah. Um, but that was that was a very general problem at this point, I think, that they made... They made NPCs, especially NPCs who had generation seven or lower, very powerful. Yeah, and and I I'm I don't know if uh, if it goes back back to the old kind of antagonistic um, ah, uh, relationship yeah. between uh, storytellers and and players, but it's it's basically the old problem that yeah, if if it has stats, you players will want to try to kill it, so they. Perhaps they upped all the stats to make her harder to kill, so so that uh, uh, the goddamn players wouldn't ruin the the <laughs> poor storytellers chronicle that they had worked yeah. on for so long. All right, so um, I think we should take a look at some of the individual characters. There are some here that I think could be interesting to talk about. But is there anyone you want to start with? Uh, well, no, we you can start and and we'll I'll, right. I'll jump in. Well, I want to start at with the very first character, actually, which is Shaba the Asamite, which I think her description has some really big problems in it. Um, because they start by saying that Asamites don't generally embrace women. They explain that she was embraced as uh, an experiment sanctioned by the old man of the mountains and that she can go unnoticed because other uh, vampires don't think as Asamites embracing women. They think of them being uh, all male mm -hmm. this really annoyed me yeah uh this 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 goes i i think this might be sort of an idea of ooh, uh the asamites are muslim and m muslims you know they they don't really view women as um uh at the same level as men and certainly women can't be warriors and things like that ignoring the fact that uh, christian europe at this point was uh at the same pretty much the same level when it came yeah. to viewing women as second class yeah. citizens and not warriors and things like that so i think this reinforces a very negative stereotype yeah i i agree agree with that and i don't know if it's just lazy writing or or a product of its time but they they could have well to begin with they could have done away with all the the entire uh, as might just embraces men uh, thing yeah because it it doesn't add anything to to the clan or or to the setting at, at all. Uh, otherwise, I mean, she's she's rather cool. She has a subplot going on where she was blackmailed into killing someone, and then she uh, kidnapped her instead, and is now planning with her how to uh, how to deal with the person who did the blackmailing. Mm. So so that's rather interesting. It's just the rest of it's just oh yeah, I agree. yeah that that could have been better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then there's Mary the Black, who is a Bali. Um, who is very, very important to the central idea of the story. 
Uh, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about her her background concept uh, or background story is rather weird with her dying as a ghoul and then being reborn through a demon and things like that. It's yeah, I, I don't know if I like it or not actually. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit all over the place and it it has the kind of like scorned woman looking for revenge bit, which can if it's not done well can get tired kind of properly. Uh, it, it can get tired kind of quick. If it's not done, no, I, I will. I will say to their credit, they also do a lot of scorned guy looking oh, yeah. for vengeance yeah, against Michael. Michael has yeah. both male and female scorned people coming after yeah. him. So, so yeah, let's. That's perhaps we should just put it on Michael and, <laughs> and move on. And <laughs> yeah, play Michael um, and, yeah, I think it's interesting that they have a Bali, um, but they haven't been described in the Dark Ages books at this point. W- you don't have uh, a description of the Daimonon. Um, discipline or their uh, weakness. So you, if, if yeah. you want to use her at this point, you actually need to find whatever modern day book the Bali are described in. Uh, that's which is, uh, a, that's a I don't very know why they point. did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and again, to go back to the kind of what we mentioned about the, the uh, demon worshipping wizard Layla, it's, I, I think it's a good idea. I, I realize that uh, uh, she is a very good or a very important part of the plot, and and she has the whole uh, being the antagonist to uh, um, to Michael, uh, and and you need the the juxtaposition of of like the the angel and the devil. Uh, but again, I'm not a big fan of Bali and the whole demon worshiping thing. So I I like that they they kept the Bali influence to pretty much a minimum. Yeah. Um, now one thing that I uh, think is interesting about the Middle Ages. One thing that I I spent some time looking into and and I think is fascinating is heresies, which is one of the reasons why I love uh, Stanislav the Caitiff and his heretical chosen of Kalomina. Oh yeah. Uh, they they have this idea that Kalomina was uh, Cain's sister, mm. um, and and they have a whole uh, idea about the Cainites being the chosen of Kalomina, who will bring about the uh, the death of all vampires through uh, Gehenna. This is something that I really liked and that I could see being used in other chronicles. This is this is just great stuff. Yeah, and and uh, on a historical note, if if you think that Christianity back at this time was basically just Catholicism and, <laughs> and orthodoxy, then oh no 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 no, it was a lot more than that. And and you have uh, what was called heresies, which was. Uh, basically uh, difference of opinions more or less and and some of them were uh, canonized and included in uh, in in the, uh, the mainstream religion and some of them were uh, persecuted and and put to the sword basically and and this went on for for hundreds of years and and new ones popped up you had the cathars in france uh, you have uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to name drop anymore because I can't think well, of another Basically, of Protestantism was yeah, a heresy. Exactly. Uh, so that's one of the more successful ones. And, yeah. then you had and I like that they include this because, as you said, it is such an important thing of medieval mm. Christianity. And Christianity is very much a focus of this book. Yeah. So it's nice to have a very central heresy going on. Yeah. Um, others, Kaital. Uh, we have a setite here. Uh, and we begin to see some nuance in the Settites as corruptors stereotype because he does give us some philosophy inherent in his actions, which I really like. I, I like Kaital and his his sort of children of Judas serpent in Eden 
um, thing that 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 works for me. I think it it gives the setites a bit more uh, substance to them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it, it's not just the the it, it, the, the setite with the trench coat. Like, Psst, do you want to buy some drugs? <laughs> uh, oh so, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, he's. Uh, he, he, I, I like the fact that he's. Um, uh, that that is quite well written. I agree with that. Yeah, uh, and his child uh, Saracine. Uh, fun fact: When the first time we played Transylvania Chronicles, uh, one of our players um, really he had this uh, Constantinople by Night book and really loved it and loved um, the characters and things like that. And he was playing a Cappadocian, and since it's a Through the Ages Chronicle, eventually his character was killed because you know Cappadocian. Mm. And then he actually uh, played Saracine, uh, the child of Ketal, as a player character uh, in Transylvania Chronicles because Saracine is, is given a very brief write-up, so he just took that write-up and, and went with it as a, a player ah, character, um, yeah. which resulted in a rather memorable mm. uh, character, actually. So just, just a fun fact. Yeah. Um, I just want to mention briefly, you've talked about him as well, Baron Thomas Ferro. Uh, the the gangrel. The only thing I have to say about him is that I like him. I don't know why, but I just really like him. Yeah, I uh, I think he's well written. I think he's he's I don't know almost a bit flat. I I find the I find the concept of of gangrels uh, wanting to protect a city instead of being very uh, nomadic and especially that they um, are are allied with its Michi. I've, I I think that's really an interesting take on the thing. Uh, I'm I'm not really I I don't see any flaws with with the good Baron, but I he's uh, I don't know he didn't catch on to me as as much. Uh, I think he's someone that if I were to run a chronicle, I would take him and really expand on him. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, one I want to mention is Gregorius Demetrius, uh, the Malkavian. I've already mentioned just how silly his picture is. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, cool character. He's one of the the scorned uh, people that are after Michael, and he's responsible for his madness. Uh, but there's one thing I really need to say, and that's um, in the description of his him, his image. Uh, it says, Gregorius appears frail and sickly. His limbs are bone thin and his eyes carry a tinge of sadness. Yeah. His thinning gray hair frames his head like a crown, giving him a defiant Roman appearance. Mm. Uh, he has an appearance of five. Yeah. And Something went wrong there. Yeah, and, and the picture of him, he it doesn't. <laughs> he, he could be bald or, or uh, bus cutted, but he doesn't have the, the long hair framing his face. So, yeah. And he's just chilling back, lying back, yeah. dreaming. Yeah. Looks like he's getting a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. Yeah, um, yeah the, the Nosferatu, uh, we've already talked about how much we, we like them, uh, both, you know, the, the artwork, but I also really like the description of them. Uh, you've talked more about that. Uh, I don't know if you have more to say, but I, I think they're just great. Yeah, I, thi I think so too, and and they have. Uh, um, I I like the whole thing that they have going on with um, uh, with the lepers and and using them, or using the leper houses as kind of hideouts, and and of course, uh, running around in the sewers and and uh, underground canals, which you could do again because it's Constantinople, yeah. and they. This have city has sewers yeah. for the Nosferatu to uh, run around in. Excellent. Yeah. So, but. Yeah, Malachite, uh, the Rock of Constantinople. I I really like him as a as a character. He he has um, uh, 
a, a presence like you, you the, the way he's described that that yeah he knows that he's bad ugly and scary as fuck but ye, he knows that he's still an important uh, person and he's not going to let you forget that he is an important person yeah he's he's owning it yeah um yeah a uh, quick mention of gregory the wonder maker it is a very interesting concept and it is so nice to see a non quote-unquote gypsy Ravnos. We've talked about yeah. their problems with Clan Ravnos at this point. I love this guy mm. just for being a non-stereotypical Ravnos. Yeah, exactly. That he's he's not just uh, the trying to to make a bunch of money and and uh, backstabbing or, or betraying everyone. Yeah, I, I I I agree. I really like him. So in Clan Toriador, obviously, there's Michael the Patriarch, the central character mm. of uh, the the book and the high concept. Um what what is your take on him? Well, I I think that if if I would run a game of uh, uh in set in in Constantinople, I would probably never um allow the the players to interact directly with him. Uh, I totally agree because with that. 100%. Yeah, that that would probably take away uh, too much of of the mystery and uh and the splendor of him. So have him lying around in 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 torpor somewhere, and perhaps having have him visit uh, the players in dreams, or or if you want to have like the big reveal at the end of the campaign, then yeah, then then they would see him fleetly in in a fleeting moment far away or something, and and just to yeah. to show off his well his charisma appearance of of nine and his <laughs> presence of nine as well. So yeah, it, this is an an impressive motherfucker and uh, you shouldn't use him too much because he's he's just gonna lose his uh, appeal uh yeah um i i um i agree keep him separate uh, separate uh a distant character um i i actually really like him because they've they've made this ancient powerful character but they've made him flawed he has this overriding desire to be worshipped which means he's just not an uh, not just an un, all-powerful unstoppable force his desire to be worshipped um combined with all these things that you said appearance nine presence nine uh, he he attracts worshippers and then he does things that results in them seeing uh, it as if he betrayed them so he makes his own enemies yeah. uh which i think is uh, is really really good um, the only thing that that I think his appearance, he, he it says that, that he has used you know a combination of presence and chemistry to look like a stained glass angel. I think that's a bit too much. Yeah, that again, I I think it's I I don't know how I would use that in in the actual game. Like how how would yeah that it, they, it would just look weird. I I like the fact that the the portrait of him is kind of in a stained glass. Uh, style and with him as an angel with with uh, um, uh, the halo and everything because that kind of captures his image but yeah it, it doesn't work as an actual person in no have him more like you know a three-dimensional shining uh angelic being that that appears otherworldly but yeah. but isn't you know a stained glass window that's yeah uh, it I, it, it I don't think it works. No, uh, I I would much rather have him like like you kind of um, uh, describe it, or or to um, 
get some influence from from another setting uh the angel angel islington from uh, oh yeah from neil gaiman's uh, neverwhere story uh played kind of fantastically by a not a young but a younger peter capaldi in his uh, pre doctor who days uh so yeah some something like that just this probably dressed kind of uh kind of simply in, in just some simple robes but he doesn't need fancy clothes or or armor or anything like that because again presence nine uh, <laughs> yeah um in the Tsimish section we have uh i don't know if it's pronounced gesu or yesu a uh, g-e-s-u mm. um but he is another character that i love because he gives a different take on the Tsimish. uh a central po- uh, point of this is that you have the obertus Tsimish who later become extinct uh, and only live on as uh, a revenant family yeah. but they are christian Tsimish who are exploring what it means to be a vampire and what uh vicissitude means and uh, uh, Gesu here is sort of the central character that's left in in the city and um i really like uh him and one of the things that i absolutely love is his whole story about how he was embraced i'm not going to go into detail but a lot of things happened that cannot be explained by taking the rules of of the game and yeah. i like that sometimes things happen where the players go hang on we have no idea how this happened players yeah. who know the rules very well will be confused like how could this happen yeah. uh so it keeps the world of darkness mysterious and scary yeah. so i think this is a very good character yeah i i agree with that to again it goes kind of back to to uh, uh, leila the wizard that some things are just strange and scary and fucked up even if you are a, a millennia old vampire uh, and it keeps both the players and the characters on their toes and i really like yeah. that what i don't uh, like is his character portrait with with the entire tentacle thing going on in, in the background uh, no that is a bit weird that's true Um, And we also have what I think might be the first appearance of Vukos at this point point called uh, Myka or Myka Vukos. Um, And this was before he got annoying. Yeah, it did. And started throwing penises at everyone. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So we're we're getting to that. It's it's literally canon. Uh, (laughs) Look it up, but we're going to we're going to mention that when we get to it. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I've actually seen that happen. Yeah. for those who don't know, um, uh, there was a LARP that has been run a few times, uh, which is basically the Convention of Thorns as a LARP. Uh, I played in the first iteration, and there was someone playing Vukos, which I might add played him extremely well and had a great look going. And if I recall correctly, uh, he did do the whole penis throwing thing. Uh, and I think it worked mainly because it's such a core part of canon. And people, most people who were there were prepared for it. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, Vukos here, very briefly mentioned, I think later on they overuse him and he just becomes annoying. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's it's just too much. And uh, yeah, like you said, he, he just gets annoying. Mm. Now in the Ventrue section, we get uh, one of my favorite historical characters uh belisarius Hmm. um if you're not into military history you may not know him uh but if you're into military history he is incredibly famous he's widely regarded as one of the greatest generals in history Hmm. i mean you can mention him in the same breath as say napoleon or um um 
why can't I remember what he's called? The Swedish guy. Uh, Gustavus Adolphus. Thank you very much. Why couldn't I remember him? He's also one of my favorite generals. Yeah. Uh, this guy was, was huge. And they have some historical characters in there. They have uh, Petronius, mm. who's um, a Toreador, and Anna Komnenna, uh, who is a Ventru. Um, and then he's not in the book, but he's mentioned quite often, Narcissus, uh, who's become a La Sombra. Yeah. These are all historical characters. And I'm sort of ambivalent when they use historical people who are embraced. I mean, Petronius and Anna Kamemna are perhaps not the most well-known of characters, Narcissus as well, but I feel Belisarius is a very, very well-known character, though that might just be because I have an interest in military history. Yeah, I, I knew who Belisarius was, and I I think this is one of the few times where it, it kind of works. I, I think it just comes down to a matter of opinion and how you actually use him because mm. uh, like there, there's a whole subplot with uh, the mm. uh, the last uh, uh, Cappadocian who is embracing all the uh, former emperors and, and keeping yeah. them in torpor in a crypt. Uh, Which I thought was a bit weird. Yeah, it's but again, it's Cappadocians. You you <laughs> you don't ask. But uh, but yeah, I I can see how <coughs> it might be weird to have Belisarius um, uh, as the historical figure. Um, but I I think it it can work. Uh, it's yeah, especially like you mentioned, he's he's not necessarily a fringe character, but when you uh, when you actually in the berlin by night book for for modern times had basically every top level nazi as oh. as a vampire yeah it's it's not let's let's yeah, not go let's, into that let's not go oh. there. it's a silly place <laughs> uh yeah um also i was this might be because i'm a belisarius fanboy but i think his stats didn't do him justice as the great general that he was but that's uh that's just a minor thing mm. um then two more that I made a note of. Uh, there's Zoe, uh, the uh, the apprentice oh, yeah. of um, of uh, Gregory. Um, just mentioning that I really like the fact that there are no mage specific terms mentioned about her. So the right way to include a, a wizard. And then there's Ahmed, who is a Salubri, um, who's involved with the Tsimish and uh, a very esoteric uh, idea about exploring dreams. Um, which I think is, is cool. I like all these esoteric things that are going on. Uh, but he's just mentioned as a salubri, so I'm just thinking this will, uh, sh would be before they introduced the idea of warrior salubri, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, I would think so as well. Uh, I do uh, I, I, I do think the, the entire concept of, of him just lying around and, and attracting followers from, from all over the place uh, is an interesting one. Uh, so yeah, it's um, uh, the w what I what I can never get get out of my head when it comes to the clan salubri is that in in Sweden it was an old uh, what you call it like the the um, uh, tablets that you put in water and and you drink it for when you get headaches and stuff like that <laughs> called <laughs> salubrin, which is basically just salubri with an n and and and. <laughs> Yeah, some some things. It's it's kind of like the Marvel uh, character Null. If you heard about him coming to uh, the Marvel universe recently, uh, l just just Google that and what his name means in Swedish, and and you can see why uh, 
why why we Scandinavians sometimes laugh at American <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, then finally, we have chapter six. Oh, unless there are any more characters you want to uh, uh, no, to I'm, talk I'm about. We've, we yeah. mentioned Malachi, uh, then we have, so I'm happy. Yeah. So we have chapter six, which gives some ideas for running stories in Constantinople, as well as a map of the city, which is really nice mm. to have. Now, I will be honest. I only really skimmed this section. Um, I know from other books that they're generally very good at giving story ideas. And from what I could tell from my skimming of this, they keep up uh, these um, this um, uh, thing of... Um, Giving, giving giving rather pocket, good ideas yeah. for how to run stories. Yeah, uh, tradition. That was the word I was yeah. looking for. And uh, um, and again, the the artwork is it's kind of varied, uh, but it's it's very evocative and and good at setting the mood. Uh, and I I also like you mentioned the the map and just on the page before that you have this. Uh, kind of of wood carving of some kind of of sea creature and and things like that pop up and from what I can tell it's it's uh, quite an an accurate uh, probably a bit later than than the thirteenth or twelfth or thirteenth century but but again it's it's kind of like these uh, things that would pop up on on maps uh, like here be dragons and stuff like that and you you have you have them here and there in the uh, in the background of um, uh, of the pages, which is, I, I think is uh, a neat uh, feature. Um, yeah, yeah, same here. So, but yeah, I, I like the. I also only skimmed the the plot hooks, uh, and again, it's uh, they're really good for like if if you as a storyteller need something to to start your campaign with, or or if you uh, if you need something to to add to it, but. Uh, if if you're a novice uh, or a beginner, then you you would probably want something more to work with because otherwise uh, you're gonna or, or rather you, you using these you're still gonna have to do a lot of work for yourself, uh, which not every storyteller is uh, prepared to do. So uh, I would have loved to see them uh, fleshed out a bit more, or just having like an introductory. Uh, adventure or something for for the characters or or for the players i mean yeah all right so constantinople by night i uh, feel that in addition to looking at it historically and as a gaming book i also want to devote a little time uh, to what i've been talking about the high concept uh, that is michael's dream and the obertus and their allies quest for understanding of the vampiric condition and spiritual enlightenment something that i re think really touches about just about every aspect of the book do you agree with me on this yeah i i think so if if, if i understand your idea of of uh, uh, the high concept then yeah i i agree with it uh, mm. uh now i i actually like this um both in the way that you can tie a game to it, but also in the way that you could do a game that specifically does not tie to it, where you can have some uh, very, very worldly characters, and then everyone who interacts with them from Constantinople would be surprised that they are not involved with this whole dream esoteric exploration thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, some people might be turned off by the fact that, that this really dominates the book, but I personally think it works also because they've dedicated... A lot of uh, of information to it, and I think they've described it really well. Yeah, and again, I think that if 
I, if you're if you're having a game set in Constantinople, then you would probably at least if you buy this book, then you probably would want to include the um, uh, the dream in some kind of way, perhaps just mm. in the backgrounds or or to show that this is something that that people fight about. Um, but again, there are there are so many things going on at at this uh, point in time. You ha you have the Crusade of 1197. Uh, which was about taking back Beirut and restore it to the kingdom of Jerusalem. So you could you could just have uh, people passing through uh, Constantinople on the way there or back from from the Crusade or or whatever. Uh, you could have trade wars. You could have the the whole uh, Venetian Genoese influence, etc. Um, etc. Et so so yeah, I I think it's a it's a very good book and. Like you said, uh, you could you could choose to include the dream as uh, <coughs> as a main point of your uh, chronicle or not, uh, but I don't think you could really have Constantinople without it, or or at least mm. you lose out on so many things, uh, which is good about the book and and the characters if you don't include it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to history, I don't think there's anything really to put a finger on except a few NPCs, pic NPC pictures, and then, of course, as we mentioned, some uh, some missed opportunities uh, with the Varangians and other yeah. things. What what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. The again, the the fact that the Varangian god was such an uh, um, important part of the politics uh, of. Constantinople or, or of the Byzantine Empire I think they really dropped the ball on that uh, yeah. but you could easily just read up on them and uh, in include them uh, in any way you wanted you could you could have like especially during the time where um, Michael actually acts as uh, as the mortal emperor uh, yeah you you could easily have uh, a guard of of uh, ghoul vikings uh, protecting him or running around the city doing his dirty work for him uh, yeah so yeah it's a lot of opportunities you could if if a guard of ghoul vikings does not spark your interest <laughs> then yeah. then i don't know what will yeah. um yeah and and also with the varangians i mean they left graffiti oh yeah in constantinople there's a piece of graffiti in the uh, I think it's pronounced Agia Sophia rather than Hagia Sophia, but I'm not 100% sure, yeah. which is basically the Viking equivalent of Kilroy was here, yeah. which I just think is awesome. Um, if if people want to look into that, uh, just, you know, that is that is a fun little thing. Yeah, it's um, the, the actual lion, though, is uh, it's actually in Venice nowadays because it was brought there. I can't remember when. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so but it's it's basically it, it's quite impressive it's it's actually more than just uh, Sven was here it's it's a whole long line of uh, I'm, I'm looking it up as I speak Asmund cut these runes with Asgeir and Thorleif Thord and Ivar at the request of Harold the Tall though the Greeks considered about and forbade it <laughs> uh, that's that's just half of it, and then uh, on the other side it says, uh, "Hakon with Ulf and Asmund and Ern conquered this port. These Ben and Harold Haffy imposed a heavy fine on account of the revolt of the Greek people. Uh, Dalk is detaining captive in is detained captive in far lands. 
Eagle is gone uh, on an expedition with Ragnar into Romania and Armenia. Uh, so, so just the time it must have taken this guy because the um, it th this lion was uh, originally located in. No wait, no wait. Sorry, sorry. I'm I'm in a completely different place. Uh, you you're talking about the graffiti which is actually on the um, uh, upper balconies of Hagia Sophia, yeah. but there's there's also yeah. a lion. Uh, that was in in Piraeus, which is the harbor of Athens, uh, and oh. it was, and that is what I'm talking about. Because again, the the uh, the, the lion is from is sculpted in 360 BC, but then at some point, uh, the uh, probably in the second half of the 11th century, uh, Vikings who were there, possibly Varangians. Uh, came and just graffitied the hell out of it. But yeah, the mm. the graffiti in Hagia Sophia is, is uh, also quite interesting, and there's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so, as a uh, no, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, historical. I, I yeah, I, I could have have uh, could do with some more information because the book I think suffers from being 124 pages. I don't think there's anything that could be cut from it. Um, but I think it's probably typical of books of this time where you were expected to do your own research, though that wasn't easy back then yeah. because the internet was not as accessible. But yeah, that's that's really, I mean, if, if they could have made it bigger, I think they could have put more in it. Uh, so as a gaming book, after reading this, do you want to run or play a Chronicle set in Constantinople? Yes, I would very much like to. <laughs> Quick and concise answer. Uh, for me... Um, I would love to play one, uh, and I think it would be very interesting to explore the high concept of the book. Um, it actually doesn't make me want to run one. It makes me want to run Bitter Crusade. So that's ah, probably yeah. because I know Bitter Crusade, yeah. and I think it could be really interesting. But yeah, as a gaming book, there are lots of cool ideas that I'm going to um, steal for my own stuff. Mm. So um, yeah. Uh, one last note, given how much previous vampire books have stated that vampires tend to be emotionally stunted beings that uh, can mostly express more negative emotions, there is a lot of falling in love going on in this book. Yeah. Then again, it's it usually leads to disaster, quite literally. So. Yeah. But yeah, I and and again, this is uh, this goes back to the to the concept of the dream and and if you're going to use it because it. It is kind of different to the the if if we use the word normal setting of of Western yeah. Europe that they are the the vampires or the angsty monsters of the night. These the the vampires of Constantinople are uh, actually they they are feeling well not living people but they 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 are very emotional. Yeah, they have emotions and they, their emotions uh, affect the way they they act and and the entire politics of the area so yeah uh, you could you could even go so far as to say melodramatic yeah that would be a very good way to explain uh, yeah. yeah and i think perhaps this 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 might be something that could make it a bit difficult i think if you're going to run a game in this you will have to sit down with your players and explain okay we need big emotions mm. we need melodrama yeah. we need you to make the wrong choice because of your convictions and your emotions things like that which i don't think all groups would be prepared to do just mm. off the off the bat yeah yeah that that's a very good point yeah so i have to say this book imp uh, impressed me i really like it and as i've mentioned i found it inspirational i didn't learn that much more about constantinople but then this isn't supposed to be a historical textbook so yeah. um i think it still holds up uh definitely uh even though it's from the first edition of of 
Dark Ages, uh, I can I can really recommend it. Yeah. Um, so, any last word from you, Peter? Well, I'm I'm going to have to apologize for uh, confusing the different uh, Viking graffitis, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a very evocative book, and uh, it it. It's very interesting just just reading it and the different plots and and everything. So yeah, well well done, White Wolf. Excellent, right on. Next time, which should be in two weeks, we're hoping for a two week uh, schedule at this point. Uh, we will be looking at Clash of Wills, another book that I haven't read. Uh, if you haven't already, check us out at Facebook at uh, World of Dark Ages Podcast uh, or on our admittedly uh, rather sparse webpage at. W O Dark Ages. That's in one word. W O Dark Ages. Dot Squarespace. Dot com. So it's goodbye from me, Jacob, and from me, Peter. Farewell, and see you next time. Bye.